This is May, and I want to welcome you to Crimes of a Decade, a Texas true crime podcast. I drop a new episode every other week discussing murders from different decades. This season, going over cases from 1990 through 1999. If you would like to support my show, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, as it helps bump my show so more people can find it. I also have a link to where you can buy me a coffee. I really enjoy creating this podcast, and for all who listen, any support is greatly appreciated. Now on to today's story, which is of a female murderer from 1996. So grab you some Whataburger and open that Dr. Pepper. Let's go back in time to Texas True Crime. In 1996, Major League Soccer made its debut in the United States. The first MLS match was held in San Jose, California, between the San Jose Clash and DC United. Major League Soccer was created in 1993 out of a deal made in order for the U.S. to host the 1994 FIFA World Cup, but it did not become fully operational until 1996. That same year, Princess Diana and Prince Charles finalized their divorce. Another thing that happened in 1996 was a woman who decided to become an angel of mercy. Please join me in walking down Erie Lane. On July 13, 1996, 80-year-old Walter Kelly died at the Cannon Oaks Rehabilitation and Nursing Center in Austin, Texas. A few weeks later, on July 28, 1996, 83-year-old Harry Waddell died at the same facility. Both men were terminally ill, so when they died, the thought of foul play never crossed anyone's mind. Their cause of death were ruled as natural causes. 38-year-old Susan Hay was the nurse for the men and had become close to both during that time. Kelly and Waddell were buried without autopsies, and their deaths would have probably never raised any suspicion if Susan hadn't opened up to her husband about their deaths. Susan told her husband how she had been close to both men and when their health deteriorated dramatically, she decided to inject potassium into their feeding tubes in order to kill them. Her husband, Mark, was unsure whether his wife was telling him the truth, so instead of notifying the police, he wrote it down in his diary and did not tell anyone for five months. However, he could not shake off this information his wife had told him and he eventually confided in their pastor and marriage counselor, Mark Weaver. After this talk, the pastor got the husband's permission to call the police to see if Susan's story could actually be true. The pastor called the police anonymously 
and left a tip stating that Susan Hay had injected an elderly nursing home resident named Harry with a lethal dose of potassium. On January 2, 1997, detectives began investigating this tip into Waddell's death. Two days later, on January 4th, Susan Hay was brought in for questioning. She confessed to administering potassium to Waddell in an amount which she knew could cause heart arrhythmias, irregular heartbeats, and cause Waddell to die. She was then arrested, but police were confused about the motive. And a few days after, Susan recanted her confession and tried to fight the charge. Along with this, police had a tough time getting physical evidence, even after exhuming the men's bodies because while a large dose of potassium can stop the heart, the natural potassium level in a body rises after death, which would mask an overdose. Even with these setbacks, the investigation continued, because even though Susan recanted her confession, they found she had told her neighbors and friends of what she had done, and the prosecution planned to call all of them to testify. The law also didn't recognize any distinction between mercy killing and any other murder, so testimony about her motive would not be allowed in a trial. So on May 4, 1998, Susan Hay and her lawyers decided the best course of action was to plead guilty to two counts of murder. She was sentenced to two 50-year sentences, which would run concurrently. She must serve at least 25 years in prison before being eligible for parole, which is actually coming up in 2023. One interesting tidbit about Susan that I found in the papers during my research was in an article from December 1997. This would have been after she had been charged with murder, but before she took the plea deal. She was sitting in jail when a fellow inmate began to go into labor. Guards had called for medical assistance but the baby was coming quick. So Susan, whom had 18 years of nursing experience and had also delivered all three of her own children with the help of a midwife, volunteered to help. She successfully delivered the healthy baby boy. In the article, it stated that Susan was happy to have been able to help, but then went back to her cell and cried. Assisted suicide is an interesting topic of conversation, but with the little research I did on the subject, I don't feel I could even breach the subject in any intellectual way. But I will share some cases that focus on this issue, known as the right to die, which asks the question, does the Constitution protect the decision to end one's own life? At least if one is terminally ill, and in great pain. This question was first raised in 1990 in the case of Cruzen vs. Director, Missouri Department of Health. In Cruzen, the court considered whether Missouri could insist on proof by clear and convincing evidence of a comatose patient's desire to terminate her life before allowing her family's wish to disconnect her feeding tube to be carried out. Although eight of nine justices concluded that the right to die was a liberty protected by the Due Process Clause, a bare majority of the court upheld the state's insistence upon clear and specific evidence 
that the patient would wish to have intravenous feeding discontinued. The Cruzan decision spurred considerable evidence in living wills, which clearly express an individual's desire to discontinue treatment or feeding in specified circumstances. Seven years later, the court faced right-to-die issues again in two cases involving challenges to laws criminalizing physician-assisted suicide. The lower courts in each case, one involving a Washington state law and another a New York statute, found the laws unconstitutional, at least as they had been applied, but the Supreme Court reversed in both cases, finding the laws to be constitutional. Although the court interpreted Cruzan as recognizing a right to refuse medical treatment, the court found no constitutional basis for a right to assisted suicide. Three justices in concurring opinions indicated that they might be willing to uphold more particularized challenges to such laws, such as an applied challenge to a state's refusal to assist a terminally ill patient in severe pain from ending his or her life. In 2006, in Gonzalez v. Oregon, the court decided another right-to-die case, although this one focused primarily on administrative law grounds, not constitutional grounds. Voting 6-3, the court ruled that Attorney General Ashcroft exceeded his powers under the Controlled Substances Act when he threatened prosecution against Oregon doctors prescribing legal drugs under that state's Death with Dignity Act. Writing for the majority, Justice Kennedy concluded that regulation of medical practices was primarily a job for the states and that Ashcroft failed to recognize the background principles of our federal system. Oregon was the first in the nation to enact a Death and Dignity Act back in 1994. This act allowed people with terminal illnesses to hasten their deaths by self-administering medications prescribed by a physician. Two stories that I came across that used this act were the stories of Brittany Maynard and of Charlie and Francie Emmerich. In 2014, Brittany Maynard chose to end her life. She had been diagnosed at the age of 29 with an aggressive brain cancer, and after surgeries to remove the tumor were unsuccessful, the tumor came back more aggressive and the doctors gave her six months to live. The doctors gave her treatment plans, but after months of research, Brittany and her family realized that no treatment plan would save her life, and that any of the doctor recommendations would destroy the time she had left. So when she came across Death with Dignity, she knew that was the right decision for her. But she and her husband, whom had only married a year before her brain cancer diagnosis, lived in California. So they had to move to Oregon and establish residency there to meet the requirements of this act. Once settled, Brittany got the medication from her doctor and would be able to take it when she was ready to go. She explained that having this choice at the end of her life had become incredibly important. It gave her a sense of peace during a tumultuous time that otherwise would be dominated by fear, uncertainty, and pain. She passed away after taking the medication, surrounded by her family. The second story is about Charlie and Francie Emmerich. 
The couple had been married for 66 years when they passed away together in 2017 in Oregon. The Emmerichs met as college students in Nebraska and married on April 4, 1951. After this, they spent years in the 1960s as medical missionaries in Mirage, India. Charlie's career went on to take them to Southern California and then to Washington State, to India, and ultimately to Oregon, where he was chief of ENT at a local hospital. The couple had three girls together. Many years later, in 2004, they moved into an apartment in a retirement community in Portland. Charlie was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease in 2012 after dealing with symptoms of the disease for years. He suffered from prostate cancer and heart problems and learned in early 2017 that he had six months or less to live. Francie, who had a little more time left than her husband, decided she would go at the same time as her husband as she had suffered multiple heart attacks and also had cancer. The couple decided to seek out the Death with Dignity Act and followed the specifics of the law, which requires examinations by two different doctors to determine a prognosis of six months or less to live, multiple confirmations of intent, and the ability of patients to ingest the lethal drugs themselves. The process took a minimum of 15 days. 88-year-old Francie died within 15 minutes of taking the drugs. Her husband, 87-year-old Charlie, died an hour after. After seeing two decades of success in Oregon, eight other states enacted their own end-of-life acts. Those states are Washington, Montana, Vermont, California, Colorado, Hawaii, New Jersey, and Maine. to say a huge thank you to CompassionsAndChoices.org, CNN.com, and all of the other great resources that helped me get all the information for this episode. I'll put a link to their work in the show notes. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Crimes of a Decade, a Texas true crime podcast. Next episode, I will be detailing a male murderer from the year 1996. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to email me at crimesofadecade at gmail.com.